Well, you know, I go on bike rides a lot. Yeah, yeah. The last one I did, we went to Staten Island. And <laughs> sorry, Staten Island, I described it as a mixture of Wu-Tang and Trump country. And um, <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, maybe unfair. But it was but it was beautiful ride. We had a really beautiful ride. I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This season I'm talking to good troublemakers, artists, activists, politicians, and others who aren't afraid to shake up the status quo. We'll talk about their work how they came to do what they do, and why it's so important in hard times to think big. You can't think about solutions without being a little optimistic. And man, oh man, I think we need some optimism right now. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm up to here with all these grown men and women humoring a petulant old man by letting him kill democracy. I'm looking for a little bit of a palate cleanser, and I suspect maybe you are too. So consider your wish granted. This week, we are going to step way above the fray and talk to musician and artist David Byrne. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us and you. And that's what the show is. That's the trailer for American Utopia, Spike Lee's amazing film version of the concert David Byrne brought to Broadway last year. We are all very lucky that Spike was able to get the film done just about five minutes before COVID shut everything down just in time to give us something wonderful to relish from our couches. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. It couldn't be a better time to sit with American Utopia than now, because it manages to be a call to action that doesn't nag you, and a reminder of America's joyful utopian dreams for itself. David Byrne is, of course, most famous for his role as frontman of the band Talking Heads, and as such, the author of the soundtrack of my own happy college days. But he's more than that. He's had a long career in music and fine art. He's published books, designed art installations, directed a film. And when we spoke in September, we talked about how he's evolved as an artist and a person. I will never forget walking home from the student co-op in 1978 with my new Talking Heads album tucked under my arm. I had never heard anything like it before. And once I'd heard David Byrne's wobbly but assertive and totally unique voice, along with the amazing complexity of those rhythms, I needed to hear much, much more. You, you have such a unique singing voice. So, I mean, how, how did you develop that singing voice? Because when you came along, I had never heard anything like that. At first, the only thing I was aware of is that I didn't want to sound like uh, the kind of received version of what a rock and roll singer was supposed to sound like. I thought, well, there's other people who are doing that already. I have to, I have to find a voice that's kind of me and, and, and it's also my generation. It's not, it's not adopting the kind of 
vocalisms or mannerisms of another generation or another people or, or anything like that. So it was a process, but that's, that's what I was aiming for. David Byrne was a very unlikely rock star. I felt very socially awkward and uncomfortable when I was younger. But I was kind of incredibly shy, and yet I managed to make my way despite that. And in fact, music was a big help that way. Mm, yeah. I could express myself getting up on stage and kind of blurting out the songs that I'd written. And that, that seemed fine. I didn't see any discrepancy between the two. In fact, in retrospect, I looked at it and thought, well, of course I had to get up and perform. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to talk to people comfortably, but I found this other way that I could communicate, and, so, and I jumped at the chance. Far from being a drawback, Burns' offbeat social energy gave Talking Heads its uniquely cool rock and roll aura. They're often lumped in with acts like the Ramones, Patti Smith, and Blondie. But even within that world, David Byrne was an outlier. Did you ever see yourself as fitting in to a particular sort of school? Or were you just seeking to do something totally unique in your own? I never felt that we exactly fit any of those kind of genres or schools that were tossed about. And at the time, I found it very annoying when we were called a punk band or a new wave band or anything. I found it, I thought, I don't know, we're our own thing. Uh, but then... In retrospect, I realized that it's kind of useful as a way of maybe alerting the public or alerting people that, that there's something new out there. There's something different. So I thought, okay, shut up. This is going to serve its, serve its purpose for a little while, and then hopefully uh, it can be abandoned eventually. During the early years, David Byrne made ends meet working at an advertising and graphic design firm. But no, he said he wasn't moonlighting as Donald Draper. I would have probably loved if I'd gotten a chance to write, write copy for ads and things like that. I would have been cynical and would have thought, oh, yes, I'm so clever. I can do this. I can manipulate people with my words. But um, I wasn't doing that. I was just, it was a graphic design place and I was just helping set type and arranged the, the pretty pictures. The starving artist portion of the band's origin story was a short one. Long before Byrne got the chance to start writing copy, Talking Heads was a sensation. Some of the hits were so popular over the decades that you probably didn't even know you knew them. Like Life During Wartime, Psycho Killer, Once in a Lifetime, His music always poked and prodded and even mocked fundamental American principles of prosperity, conformity, materialism. But in American Utopia, there's an even more overt conversation happening, at times directly with the audience. Local elections, the average turnout is 20%. To give you a visual idea of what 20% looks like, here are 20% of the people in this theater. At this moment in the show... A spotlight shines on 20% of the audience to underscore his point. It's a visual gag, and it's very striking. Here they are. These are the ones that vote in local elections. The ones up top are waving and laughing because, well, they just decided your future and the future of your children. And you guys seem to be okay with that. Byrne lets the audience know there are tables in the lobby where folks can go to register to vote right after the show. So do you see art as like a 
necessary part of social change movements? Do you see yourself now as a part of social change? I do see myself as being much more involved in maybe social change or civic life than I used to be, which could be just the times we're living in. But I think it's part of growing older, too, that when you're young, you're thinking about your own career and you're trying to figure out your life. What do I want to be? How do I do what I want to do? All these kinds of things, that's preoccupying you. And then later you can kind of sometimes go, wait a minute, I I can engage with the, the wider world in some ways, which little by little found a way to do that. And part of me feels like the the way to do that is is to show people what's possible as opposed to telling them. If I put the uh, the diversity and the joy and the, c- the collaboration and the, the community on stage for them to witness, I don't need to tell them the message here. They should be... Uh, pr- processing this on their own, and they should get this kind of emotionally and intuitively rather than me explaining it to them in a text. A song is not an op-ed piece. And it took a while to figure out how to do that in a way that where the audience could sense my questioning and vulnerability and me asking these questions of myself rather than coming on stage and just giving them what I thought were all the answers. It must take some courage to offer vulnerability on stage. Maybe, but I've been very lucky. I can can afford to take Mm. that risk. Mm. I realize that if I'm trying to be too explicit or too didactic in what I'm saying, then it kind of closes off who can relate to it and it closes off what it can be. You have to kind of leave a little bit of ambiguity and then people can find themselves in what you're what you're saying and what you're writing. And then later on, after some years, as I began to loosen up a little bit, I began to experience just this pure joy in performing and singing and making music. And I thought, I can still deal with these sometimes uh, whatever difficult or confusing subjects, but I can do it in a way that ex- that simultaneously expresses the joy in the music. And I can do that. And I thought with music, you can do that. You could have, uh, you can be saying conflicting things at the same time. You can convey a kind of joy in the singing and the performance and the music, but then the words can maybe be slightly melancholy. Um, you know, you, you know, you're making me think of Kurt Schwitters, who you invoke in the show. Didn't he use trash and refuse and off throwings of everything and re kind of reposition them as beauty? Oh yeah, Kurt Schwitters is an artist. He used to make these collages of found material, scrap paper, and tickets, and all this kinds of stuff. He, he uh, did these kind of sound poems in a made-up language. The most famous of these was one that he did called the Ur Sonata that ran for 40 minutes. And Mm -hmm. you can hear it. There's there's recordings of it. (laughs) It's it's got a rhythm to it. It's actually got a rhythm to Mm -hmm. it. It actually sounds, sounds kind of funny. But there was a serious intent. 
that he and the other artists who were trying to break the kind of strictures of kind of rigid thinking that they sensed was kind of taking their countries and, and uh, the countries around them into a dangerous mm-hmm. place. And they uh, were right. Yeah, they were right about that. And they thought that by doing these these kind of nonsensical art forms, they might be able to inspire new ways of thinking and new ways of kind of more openness in the world. Uh, don't know how much they succeeded, but kind of, well, it communicated to me. I loved it. Just like Hertzschwitters, Burns' work is full of contradictions. And that's what I found watching American Utopia. There's an emotional complexity to the lyrics and the music. The show looks very stripped down and minimalist, no props, no set, just band members performing in silvery gray suits, barefoot as they move around the stage. But the overt simplicity belies an incredible well of nuance and passion. If you were describing this show to someone who had never seen it before, what, what would you say? It's, uh, it evolved out of a concert, so there's, there's a lot of music, but it, it has a, an arc to it, a narrative arc. There's a thread that goes through it that takes it a little, that makes it a little bit more of a, a work of theater than just playing one song after another like we might do in a concert. The band and I have figured out how to perform and all of us be completely mobile. The show really becomes about us moving about the stage and what we can do and how we can present ourselves to you and talk to you. You're like a living organism, all of you up there. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. How did you come to that choreography? How did you how did you get there? Well, I knew I wanted to work with the choreographer, Annie B. Parson. I love the way she uses, I guess, what you might call pedestrian movement. It's not like a, a ballet vocabulary or dance vocabulary. There's a couple of trained dancers on stage, but the rest of us, uh, we come from other areas and that's not necessarily part of our toolkit, but we're willing to give it a try. Right, right. I love the word pedestrian for it because it's not pedestrian in the sense of it being uninteresting. It's pedestrian in the sense of being relatable. But what's so wonderful about the way Spike Lee shoots it is he kind of goes for the Busby Berkeley treatment a couple of times where he goes up there for that aerial shot straight down onto the stage and all of a sudden I'm seeing all the dance movements from this completely different angle and it's really interesting and geometric. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, yes. Spike, uh, I had seen the show I think from ground level from orchestra mm-hmm. and then I think the th- second time he saw it he went up in the balcony and realized this is a completely different show right. up here. Right. He starts seeing all these patterns and so he said I'm going to yes. go even further. I'm going to go up yeah, completely overhead from behind, from the side We'll, be, we'll show you things that, as an audience member, you could never see. That was great. Yeah, I love that so much. So the title of American Utopia is interesting to me because, um, you know, in college I took the utopian lit class and we were all explained the difference between a utopia with a U and a utopia with a y- EU. <laughs> um, was that a conscious uh distinction that you were working with when you named it that and i probably should explain <laughs> when it starts with an eu it comes from the greek word for good and if it starts with you it comes from the greek word for not so when it's a you utopia it is a place that doesn't exist 
But when it's an EU utopia, it's an ideal place. And of course, you say that the title is not ironic. And I just feel like, uh, is that a bit of trickery on your part? It's not ironic because it doesn't exist. I have to admit, I didn't know about the EU spelling. And in retrospect, I probably would have chosen that over the, the U because that's kind of more the direction I was hoping to point. Ah, <laughs> I was contemplating the idea of doing little videos for all the songs and setting them in a kind of imaginary utopian community that was struggling and it had its problems and it had its quirks and this you know, all the things that you could imagine. That never came to pass, but it was it led me to investigate a little bit of, uh, of the history of these communities. There were lots and lots of them in the United States. The, the United States being a place that to many people for a long, long time, seemed to be a place where you could make a new start, where these kind of these kind of dreams could be realized. And there were all these utopian communities. There's very few of them are left. Some of them, I think, started to run into problems when they had idealistic ideas about sexuality and marriage and mm-hmm. things like that, which that's... Whew, Things can get messy. Things can get messy, and they often did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very much. Uh, Yeah. So I wasn't going there. But I I love this idea that that this country was a place where people could realize these things. And I thought that's – it might not be in the Constitution explicitly, but it's very much how people, in the the past anyway, have perceived this country. And it's – well – it's certainly, um, it's a deception, it's an illusion, but it's one that's very prevalent. It's getting beaten up a lot lately, yes. uh, but, but it's surprisingly resilient, the idea that we, we can make a life in our own imagination and that that might actually get realized. And I thought, well, that's the idea of that kind of hope and longing that we harbor within ourselves. I thought that's what I'm talking about. The show is so optimistic, um, but it it doesn't shy away from pointing out the problems and the threats, especially, you know, the political ones. You only perform one song in the show that you didn't write. Yes. Which is Janelle Monae's Hell You Tom Bout. I'm just wondering why did you bring that song in? For people who haven't seen it, it's a song that very... Very simply, uh, names people who have been murdered by uh, police over quite a number of decades, and of course, it goes yeah. pretty much up to the present day. And it basically just says, "Remember their names, say their name, remember these people, these people whose lives have been taken unjustly." And I found it incredibly moving. I said to the band, "I'm thinking that this might be the song that we do at the end here." I happen to have her email. I'm going to write to her and see what she thinks. And she, she, to my relief, she loved the idea. So I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. We'll see what the audience thinks. Um, and I found that it was yeah. also great because it wasn't didactic. It, it, it doesn't try to shame the audience. It, it kind of tells the audience, join us in this. Yes, remember bereavement. Yeah, yeah join yeah. us. In this. And, yeah, and and did it did it matter to you that the audience was going to mostly be white and mostly be well to do? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, this is <laughs> this is pretty weird, but maybe these are the people who need to hear this. But it also, I thought, the show builds up to a point and that's very kind of celebratory, and then we hit them with mm-hmm. that, and yeah. it's yeah. like it's like we've given you all this pleasure. Now we're going to punch you in the stomach, and uh, <laughs> for the most part. The response we were getting from the audience was, we're really glad you did that. In the times we lived in, it felt absolutely necessary. I think we have to engage with uh, Mm. what's going on in the world and hold a mirror up to that rather than just providing another bit of Mm. pleasure and entertainment. I'm so struck by the way the show ends with the road to nowhere because, you know, what the heck, when I first heard it, it sounded like, you know, yep, we're on the road to nowhere, everything is bad. <laughs> Look at the way we're chasing material things. But of course, in the show, it's it's a, a party. It's an invitation. It's a festival. We're on the road to nowhere, and that's good news. Am I right to take it that way? Yeah, no, you're absolutely. That's, that's a, a great example of what I'm talking about, That what music can do. You can have lyrics that say, we're on a road to never, which on paper sounds like, oh, that's pretty depressing. Uh, but then you put the music to it, and it's joyous, kind of like a New Orleans funeral, maybe. It celebrates the transience of life instead of it just being doom and gloom. Yeah. In the concert, we used to end with Hell, You Town Bout. But I thought, oh, you know, for Broadway, maybe we just give them, give them yeah. a little bit more sugar <laughs> after that. Yes. You couldn't have picked a perfect, more perfect song to end it with. And and by the way, adding a little sugar at the end is just right for Broadway, where they invented the phrase, a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. So, you know, perfect. <laughs> so, so, so I feel like we've, we've watched you evolve over the years. The, the 70s and 80s, so much of your music um, was a critique of consumerism and mass production and conformity and these things. But you take those same songs and and the, the show ends up radiating a, a warmth and optimism, which is kind of a neat trick as far as I'm concerned. Your views about consumerism, have, have they changed at all? Your view of the kind of the American middle class and how did I get here and the rest of that? I mean, are you, have you evolved in that yeah, way? I would like to think that I, that I have a little bit more empathy now than I did in the past, that I can, that can, I can feel people's longing and their desire for a nice house. I mean, it's, it's, that sounds really simplistic. But, you know, a nice house, a yard. <laughs> when I was yeah. a younger person, you kind of reject all that stuff. You go, oh, that's a boring life. That's a, you know, that's a dead end. But then later on, you realize, you can see that, even though that's not my life, I can see the attraction in it. And I can also see, like, the pain that people must feel uh, in recent decades as that that possibility seemed mm-hmm. to go f- be further and further Step away. Away. Yeah. I mean, definitely it feels like an easy life to trash when you're 18 and you actually came from all that comfort. Absolutely. And I'm, not, I'm not necessarily advocating for suburbia and big lawns <laughs> and everything, but I understand that feeling. I, I, I can't just lively trash all those values 
I, I'm, I'm so happy I'm older now because, yeah, I, I don't trash a lot of things anymore. <laughs> I, I have, it's like you, a lot more empathy than I used to have. I think we all evolve. We're all, none of us are the same person that we were when we were younger. I hope so. I hope, I mean, that's, uh, that's the, the possibility that we have as, as humans that we, we can change that way. The film American Utopia is now streaming on HBO. And after you're done listening, subscribing, and telling all your friends about the podcast, go watch it. And the show is coming back to Broadway September 2021, so get your tickets now. And America Utopia isn't the only civically engaged work David Byrne is doing these days. He also started an online magazine and newsletter called Reasons to be Cheerful, which shares stories of places where things are working very well indeed, stories we don't get to hear much about in our heated times. Do you think there's a chance with things like Reasons to be Cheerful to kind of break that cycle of pessimism informing pessimism and informing our politics? I hope so. We've just been doing it for a year now, so we can't totally assess the impact yet. But that's a hope that basing policies on fear, making people feel fear and anger and kind of anxiety, that's kind of paralyzing. Mm -hmm. What kind of feedback have you gotten? We We get really nice feedback. The negative feedback tends to be Wait a minute! This story isn't uh, isn't cheering me up as much as I was hoping. You guys got to be. <laughs> you guys have to work a little harder. <laughs> you can find that at reasonstobecheerful.com. And this past year, his colleagues approached him with a new idea: a journalism series called "We Are Not Divided." At first, Byrne was skeptical. My reaction was, "Are you kidding?" Um, Do you not read the newspapers? What world are you living in? (laughs) But since then, he's gotten way on board. So if you want to read some great stories of people coming together across political divides, and I recommend you do, you can find We Are Not Divided on the Reasons to Be Cheerful website. And for other updates from Byrne, follow him on Twitter at dbtodomundo. And just to let you know, we're taking next week off. Stay safe, stay healthy. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pancrazi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Audio from American Utopia, courtesy of HBO. The podcast team also includes VP of Production, Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>